That's what you should be noticing when you read that in the text. This is a reversal of Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, we see a creation, right? Here, we're supposed to notice this is a, the judgment is, is tantamount to a decreation event. Okay, all right. And Adonai saw the wickedness of humankind was great on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil all the time. Humanity, humankind, because of what humankind had done on earth, there became a retraction. Death began to have its impact on all the other spheres, meaning... um, Seven, so Adonai said, I will wipe out humankind whom I have created from the face of the ground, from humankind to livestock, crawling things, flying creatures of the sky, because I regret that I made them. Then here we are today. But Noah found favor in Adonai's eyes. But Noah found favor. Now, I read a commentary, I heard a commentary of a man who said that this is an unfortunate reading that creates unfortunate ideas in our mind. But Noah found favor or grace in the in the eyes of the Lord. It should read but Noah this way, sorry. But grace found Noah. But grace found Noah. Because when we look at it, we say, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What we automatically think is, is that Noah did something. You can't help but do it, can you? That Noah did something to bring about his salvation from this judgment that was, and this was judgment. Be clear about it. This was judgment. See, so many times, and I know that in my life, I have, I have had trouble with this, that knowing that God is good. How many of y'all know that? I mean, we say, it all, God is good, God is good all the time, God is good, you know. And that somehow, in focusing on God's goodness, we think, and then people may say, yes, God is good. But God is also severe. And while we look at that and we go, yeah, that's true. See, what we've done as a byproduct is we have made his goodness contradictory to his severity. And the Lord told me, I was talking, about, I was pr- talking to the Lord about his love and his wrath one day. Because I wanted to understand the balance between love and wrath. And right there was my problem is I was looking through it through the lens of balance. As though I had to do the same thing. His love is on one side, and I make a scale in my mind, and I put his wrath on the other. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And he said, he even used my name, Andrea. 
you are full of contradictions. There are no contradictions in me. My love is not contradictory to my wrath. So what he's starting to do there, and did I at that moment get it? No, it's like a domino effect. It's like sowing a seed, and then the seed begins to populate the garden. And so I had to start reframing, with the help of the Holy Spirit, a a paradigm of understanding God and his love and his wrath and his goodness and his severity in a way that did not put them at odds with one another. That somehow he had to, that here's the fact, his severity is an extension of his goodness. His wrath is an extension of his love. They are not separate from one another. So God is judge, and he is a good judge, and he is good, and he is severe, and he is loving, and he has wrath. And all of that, all of it is in the one person of the Godhead. And he doesn't have like different dark spots in his character He doesn't go to his closet of his character and pull out a hat and say, I'm wearing my wrath hat today. And he had to take his goodness hat off to do it. Does that make sense? And sometimes that even means, as a parent, allowing your children, when they get to a certain age, not two, three, or four, or five, or ten, you know what I mean? When they hit that adulthood age, to just give them their head, so to speak. You know what I mean? When you're, if you're breaking a horse or you're riding a horse, and the term to give a horse its head is just to let it run. Let it run until it runs itself in the ground. And sometimes that's what God does to us. He just gives, he, I mean, he's just trained and he's talked to us and he has tried to pull us back and rein us in and guide us. And at some point he just gives us our head. It's like, okay, I'm going to let you carry this out to its full extension. Paul says it this way. A person, a brother or sister in the house of the Lord who will not be corrected of sin in their life. They're living in sin and they call themselves a brother or a sister in the Lord and they're living in sin and the whole process of the pastor goes to them and they won't hear him take a witness to them and they won't hear them and what they're trying to do the whole time, they're trying to say, you need to quit this. You need to quit this. You need to stop this. It finally gets to the point where Paul says, show them the door. Release them to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that their soul might be saved. Now, that's, that's tough, isn't it? And so, see, we in our mind, we're like, oh, we got to be, you know, we got to be good. We got to be good. We got to be good. Is that not good? Wow. 
all. See what I mean? So it's, it's hard, and I agree. I mean, many of us, we grapple with these things because it's hard because you're like, well, but yeah, yeah, but I know a guy who did that, and they just turned them out. And I'm not saying every case is perfect that you've ever seen and that this is always done well. I'm not saying that. Because as I'll go back to what the Lord told me. Andrea, you can put your name in there. You are full of contradictions. I am not. So I have to always live in the reality that I may not know as much as I think I know. And, I, <laughs> and, and you may not know as much as you think you know. So here, here we all are together in this one big hum, human soup, <laughs> right, just floating around. <laughs> That's nice. This juicy substance called life. So here, here we go. But today, we're going to talk about this and how the, the main thing, but Noah found favor in Adonai's eyes. But Adonai's eyes found Noah. And he extended grace. But then what does that extension of grace look like? We probably know the story of Noah, right? What did grace actually produce in his life? It, do y'all think that Noah was a genius shipbuilder? No, but he became a genius shipbuilder, right? That is what grace had in its package. The instructions for a boat. But Noah had to saw the wood. He had to go for wood. He made it out of gopher wood. And he had to go for that wood. It's, it's fun. You'll never forget what the boat was made out of now, will you? Gopher wood. So he had to saw down those gopher trees. Whatever a gopher tree is, I think it's acacia wood, actually, another name for it. But he had to saw it down. He had to plane it out. I mean, do you all think, how many of you all would want to build a boat with the modern tools removed from you. I wouldn't even want to build a boat with every kind of tool in the world. That's right. <laughs> exactly, yeah, right. It took him a while. I mean, he's having to peg that thing. And Oh, gosh, yeah. But grace afforded all of that. It's amazing. So what does grace do? Now, if we look at our notes from today, how many of y'all have ever seen the great movie, well, there's many remakes of it, but there's one I'm thinking of in particular, Les Miserables. You might look at it and you think it's less miserable. <laughs> Les Miserables. Oh my gosh, I would love to be y'all today. If I was sitting where you were at and I had never seen one of the greatest movies ever made and I, could, and I had the opportunity to lay my eyes on it for the first time, I, I'm envious of you. Les Miserables, L-E-S space Miserables, kind of, that's what it looks like. Les Miserables. So it's French, obviously. Don't worry, you don't have to read. Don't worry. No, you, there's one, there's lots of them, there's musicals. The one I'm thinking of, and I don't know his name, I didn't know there's going to be so many people that hadn't seen it, I can't believe it. The Frenchman who's really weird looking is in it. Gerard, no, no, not Gerard Butler, he's Scottish. It's, you know what I'm talking about, Becky, the one that has, he's, it's from the 80s. He was real popular actor in the 80s. But anyway, it, regardless, 
So in the story of Les Miserables, it starts out with um, a man, the main character, and he's a prisoner. He is getting out of incarceration. He's in incarceration because of the crimes that he has done, right? He's not, you know, I know everyone in prison is innocent. I know. Yeah, right. But he is actually getting out for the crimes he has done. He was a thief. And so here he goes, and he is, he goes out, and this, he meets a priest, and this priest allows him to stay in his house. And while, during the night, this man, the priest feeds him a meal, talks to him, witnesses to him, extends love and grace to him. And in the middle of the night, he steals a silver candlestick from the priest, puts it in his bag and flees in the middle of the night. And he's out and, and this kid, and he, he takes a coin from a kid. I mean, he's obviously, you're supposed to pick up the fact, he's still a bad man. He has not been reformed. And then the constable comes and catches him. And he has this silver candlestick and the priest, he comes before the priest and, and, and he knows he's caught, right? He's caught. He's going back to the clink. And so the priest, clink, you won't find that in there. <laughs> It'll say something way more poetic. So he's going back. Now, the priest is there and the constable, he says, he said, this man, is this your property? He said, yes, yes, it's my property. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 here I go. Back to the priest now. So he says, no, this is my friend. This is my friend. I gave him those candlesticks. And he's looking at him. I gave him those candlesticks. He's taken nothing from me. They are his as a gift. And so the guy now is like, he's incredulous a little bit. He's, you know, you're thinking, oh, he's transformed right there. He's melted. No, 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 no. That's not how grace usually works. He's like, I got away with it, sort of. He doesn't know what's this, what's this guy playing on me. Or is he? Or is he not? And he walks away with the candlesticks scot-free. What happened to him then is the burden of this gift began to weigh on his heart. And he begins the process of living up to the gift and turning his entire life around. It's as if the whole story is about him becoming worthy of the gift that he never was supposed to receive. Now, as my first thing I wrote here is innocent. I am. You are. If you have faith in Christ, you are innocent. As innocent as that man was in the story, declared innocent, and by all intents and purposes, innocent in the eyes of the law. You see what I mean by that? You are innocent, but not perfect. 
And so innocent, not perfect, but being perfected. Psalm 138 and 8 says that he is perfecting that which concerns me. And Philippians 1 and 6 says that something good I can't quote right now. I'll have to look it up. Philippians. See, if I had my quoting on, I could do this good. And it wouldn't be so long. It's me. It's me. Really. Okay. Just mingle among yourselves. Oh, I see you. Philippians 1 and 6. I am sure of this, that he, I knew this, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to perform it until the day of Christ. So that word there, he who has begun will be faithful to complete it, is the the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew term that 138 and 8 says that he is perfecting that which concerns me. See, it has the, has the, the idea of pulling out a telescope, you know, a pirate's telescope. You know what I mean? It's short and you go, until you pull it out to its full extension. It's called teleos. It is fully extended. So it has, it bears, y'all can study this in your own time. This has a, this has a meaning of there's a growth and a maturing, even When I say the fact that I am innocent, not perfect, but I'm being perfected, even when I say I declare my innocence, do you understand what I'm saying? Even when I declare my innocence, I am innocent before God. I want you to say that with your own mouth. I am innocent before God. Even as I say that, I feel the responsibility of that gifted innocence. You see what I mean? I feel it all of a sudden. I can't can't help but feel it. I feel it justified, just as if I had never sinned. What does that make me feel? It makes me feel. Here's what it makes me. I don't know about you. Maybe you need to grapple with it. I understand I've sat with this a little longer. It makes me feel humbled, just humbled and grateful. I mean, like a gratitude that's more than just like a gratitude that sits somewhere in me, like a gratitude that when I get up and walk away with the candlesticks I stole, but I didn't get charged for it, but I was declared innocent. When I walk away with that gift, it just makes me start. It's that gift in that sack that starts to call upon something inside of me does that make sense I mean I just I'm like if I'm going to receive it still if I'm going to carry it with me still I have there's like this there's like this other extension of it that is this there is this life-giving responsibility and a humility and a gratitude and a 
an inability to claim anything as my own and that just feeds back into humility and gratitude and and it just it's like this cycle and then in that cycle of receiving and feeling that responsibility this something beautiful happens I start growing into a form of myself that I never was before I was like, and that's the best way I can describe grace to you that's just the best way I can do it and it may be inadequate so we're going to hit today on what I think is one of the most challenging passages of scripture in the word of God in my opinion you may have others there's several but this to me is the most challenging and this is going to be found in first John because I think if we get a true experience of grace I think in really understanding grace grace carries in it the responsibility needed to obey <laughs> I just I think I'm not it won't be perfect obedience, right? It won't be perfect. I, I, I didn't say I was perfect. I just said I'm innocent. And even when I say those two things, see, every time, every time I claim my innocence in light of my imperfection, the all I can do is go, I don't deserve this. But then at the same time, it makes me want to deserve it but in a way that not to earn it, but to be worthy of it. Because to live a life that's worthy of the gift that I've been given. Do you see that? I, I, this is the best way that I can describe the work of the gospel in me and try not to come up with some legalistic view. Yes, and then, but, but in it, and it wasn't, and it was that, it was that, but it was in the, it was in the holding of the gift. You know what I mean? Even... It's in the awe of the gift. It's looking at the priest and knowing he knows. He knows. He knows what I did. He knows that I was in his house the night before. And he knows that I got up in the middle of the night. And I rifled through his things. And I took property that was not mine. He knows that. Me, he and I, we both know what I'm guilty of but instead he looks in my eyes and tells the law no thank you for you found my friend it was a work it wouldn't have been worth stealing if it wouldn't have been Absolutely. He would have wanted to keep it. That's why he had it kept safely in his house. It, it was. He, yes. And when all of that was revealed, when all of that was revealed. See, now how many of you want to go see Les Miserables? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. This is my point. This is my point. And so here, we're going to take this whole picture, I hope, I hope, and we are going to read what I think is, I'm just going to wrap this on my leg so I'll hang myself. And we are going to read what I think is one of the most hard scriptures to 
to land in the exegetical hermeneutic to create our epistemology. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're going to find out how to interpret it. To, to divide the, rightly divide the scripture, interpret it in light of its setting, and develop our belief system. That's what I just said. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, that's it. And you don't want to live up to it because you've earned it, because you've already received it, so you can't earn it, but yet it's in your possession. And you don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. See, taking the Lord's name in vain is not about a curse word. Now, I don't advise you to use a curse word, but it's about way more than using a swear word. It's about putting on his identity and then living a life that is completely incongruent. It's like receiving a gift and then living with total just disregard to the magnitude of the gift or acting like you've earned it in, in, some, in some religious way of somehow you, you, you are now performing to get it. Yes, okay, so let's just get to the, we can stay here all day and there's a million ways to say it and they'd probably all be good, but let's read 1 John 3 and I think I'm going to read at 4 and we're going to end on 6 as being where we're going to talk. We're going to go to five. This is the message, 1 John 3. I'm in one, sorry. 1 John 3 and 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. <coughs> you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Wow. Is that not a confusing statement I just made? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, it's, it's, so here we go. Now, so no one, it says here, what does it mean that believers do not continue in sin? What does it mean? Now let's read 5 and 8. Now let's jump over to John 5, 1 John 5 and 8. And it says this. this oh, 1 John 18. Sorry, 5 and 18. Thank you all. That's why I give you my, note, my notes. You've helped me. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has... Bo who, who, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Right there. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Now, this right here is where your translation may say something different. I looked in the Greek because I wanted to know. Because in my ESV version, the he, but he, how many of yours, but he, you're looking at it, is the he capitalized? Is capitalizing yours? Not capitalizing yours. 
Mine's not capitalized here either in the ESV. New Amer very good translation. But see, these are all good translations. But I went to the Greek, and the he, who is the he? Because if the he is me, then that says something than if the he is him. Do you see what I mean? So it's important. See, you, don't, you know, there's a difference in, this, in, in understanding this. But he who is born of God protects him. It is. In the Greek, the subject he is left out, but in the Greek it has in brackets the one, and it has a capitalized. So the one who was uniquely born of God is what the Greek says protects him who is born of God. So what that says is this. Let me just put it into what I believe the scripture is saying. But we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. That's me and you, right? Everyone who is born of God. But he, Jesus, who was born of God, protects him. Keeps him, protects him, perfects him. So what we have there, because I originally read that and I'm like, well, who's protecting who? Am I protecting? And, and there is a protection to it. But the reality is this. This is how Watchman Nee said it. Watchman Nee said, it's like a stone. He's Chinese, so this is going to be very Chinese. So you take a stone and you put a stone under a waterfall. And as long as the stone is under the waterfall, the stone is clean. But when the stone is not under the waterfall, and wherever it lays, it will automatically grow dirt and moss and debris. It will collect its environment. And so here is the reality of abiding in God, abiding in the sacrifice, abiding in faith, abiding in grace, abiding in the gift, abiding in the gift of innocence and the responsibility abiding there in that place of of I'm so honored that the Lord has given me this gift that I did not deserve and I'm abiding there in faith in the reality of what Christ has done that he is perpetually pouring out his grace to me so in his first epistle the apostle John deals with the assurance of salvation I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I would love for you to know that you have eternal life and what that means. Since he wants his readers to know they have eternal life, John provides a test of faith that we can use to examine whether or not we are in the faith. How many of you think that that's scriptural? Second Corinthians says, examine yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. Do you see how grace, it, it's, it's the gift, and then there's also this like, there's like this onus as well. There's this like prime directive. And, and so they live together in this perfect tension, maybe, harmony. I don't know what the right word is, but the first test of faith we find is in 1 John 1 and 3. 1 John 1 and 3, and I don't want to go through all these scriptures. That's why I gave you the scriptures. The believer enjoys fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people. That's the first test if you're in the faith. If you're in, that's 
from John, from John saying, John's saying this, why am I writing this letter to y'all? I want you to have the assurance that you are in the faith of your salvation. But then he goes on to say, now see, here again, please don't hear these things as works to do. Check these things like the way you would go to the doctor, a diagnostic, and you check your temperature. Yes. And you should be able to look and go, and this is a real, this is just not a, this is not a condemnation thing. This is a true diagnostic for you to hold it up to your life and examine yourself. How many of you examine yourself on a daily basis before the mirror of your bathroom? You know what I'm talking about? You've exa- you, before you presented yourself to the world, you brushed your hair, you brushed your teeth, you looked to make sure the, you know, the sleep was out of your eye and if there's any slobber running down, you didn't just walk out like that. Right? You examined yourself to see how do I present to the world. And I do it for you because I don't look at myself. I look at you looking at me. Hmm. And see, that's what we're doing here. We're looking at you looking at me. And you're looking at me looking at you. You see what I'm saying? And this is how we're together in this thing, looking at each other through this diagnostic lens. So the believer enjoys fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people. Now, this is where I get really bent out of shape when people talk about the body of Christ. I want to say, and, and, it's, and you know what to me? It's okay if it's the world doing it, people who don't claim Christ at all. I'm like, well, yeah, I would expect you to say that. That's cool. It doesn't, that doesn't bend me out of shape. What bends me out of shape is people who are supposedly in the body of Christ talking about the body of Christ. Shut up. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that in a way that like, hey, we need, we got some issues. We need to sit around the table. I'm coming to the table with you, and we're at the table together, and we're going to work through issues. I'm not saying in that context. I'm saying the person goes, I quit going to church 20 years ago. Church is full of nothing but hypocrites. I, you know, I, me and the Lord, we got our own thing going on. You don't have to go to church to be saved. Well, no, you don't have to go to church to be saved, dummy. I don't say that. See, that's me being ugly. So I'm thinking. Innocent, not perfect. (laughs) The believer enjoys fellowship with his redeemed people. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, like if, yes, I'm going to spend, I'm going to spend eternity with you people. You people. You people. You know what I mean? I want to practice being with you. I want to know you. I do. I want to know your stories. Me and Mike were talking about this just yet this morning, weren't we? How that if you will sit down and talk to a person and listen to them, they are so interesting. Here's what saddens me. I can sit down with a person. They'll call me to have this or that or the other. And they'll want to talk to me, and I will listen to them tell me everything in the world about themselves. They will talk about themselves 100% of the time and never once ask me one thing about myself. Not one. Now, some of you may say, well, because that's your function. 
They call me as to be their pastor, pastor's wife, or something like that. Happens all the time. I talk to people all the time. I can tell you people's middle names, and they wouldn't know if I have two legs or not. See, because the reason, you know the reason that that happens? People are so introspective. They are such navel gazers. They've got their heads crammed in their belly button. And they're just so worried about themselves. But here, I want to give you just one piece of advice for the betterment of your life from henceforth. When you sit down and talk to someone, ask, get to know them. She is a gift to you in what her experience and vice versa. I mean, to know where people came from, to know. I look across here and I know things about many people in this room because I've heard your stories. I know that Belinda drove a truck and got a job she didn't deserve to get. I know Pam's story about her father who looked for her, who was a pastor. I know Keith Cooper has a strange story about his jawbone. <laughs> you know, I know that Dolores has beat cancer. I know, I know that you have come through alcoholism. I know that Stacy's been healed. I know, see, I know Clint and Shelby. I know things about them. My question to you, do you know this about each other? See, oh, oh. I thought I was coming here to get myself fixed up. This is how you get fixed up, guys. Koinonia. One accord. You say, well, people, I've been in church. I've been in church and people are bad. They're mean. They did this and that. Yeah, that probably happened to you. And it would be, it would be so sad if you missed out on the great. If I was the devil, if I were the devil, I would guard the greatest instruments of joy with everything I had. If I thought that the house of God would be a place where the children of God would prosper and grow and develop into the full expressions of grace that God had for them, I'll tell you, I would use everything in my satanic arsenal to lie, to steal, to kill, to keep people who call themselves children of God from the house of God, I'd make them hate Christians. I'd make them have, be so distorted in their values and their beliefs about the children of God. Because I, in isolating them and keeping them from the medicine that would heal them, I could, by a byproduct, destroy them. You see what I'm saying? And so here's my commitment to you. You can't offend me all. I'm tougher than that because of grace. 
faithfully. But, but I don't always do it well. I'm innocent. <laughs> Not perfect. But see, every time I say that, doesn't it? It brings me back. Every time I say it, guys, it snaps me back to the reality of the responsibility. Every time. I can't not. When I understand where my innocence is derived, but yet I'm not perfect, in those two things, in those two statements, I'm instantly brought back to the onus. Yes, sir. That's what it makes me feel like. Innocent, not perfect. I'm like, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I don't know. Somehow that's, that's just... It's just the right place for me and for me to understand it. So the believer enjoys fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people. They enjoy. That's enough of that. The believer walks in the light, not in the darkness. The believer admits and confesses his sin. When you're wrong, you just say it. Mia culpa. What does that mean? My B. My bad. My my response is my responsibility. That's it. Right, and so I say this not to chastise anyone. or I say this to give you an opportunity to see where your health lies. And it, it lies in you pulling your head out of your belly button. Yeah, <laughs> that's the sound effect it'll make. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And... And looking around to say, you know what? I believe my healing lies in your face. And in your face. You see what I mean? And just getting to know you and sharing with your struggles. That's and see, there's just something beautiful about that. There's something that is, that's extraordinary. And don't let some version of religious programming of what your daddy or your mama, if I listened to my daddy about what church was like and what Christians were like, I wouldn't be here. But I listened to my heavenly father. And so I took my identity there. The believer obeys God's word. We won't go into it. The believer, this is, this is, my, this is what I'm snapped to responsibility. The believer loves God, love, loves God rather than the world. I mean, what, what, you got to check your desire. You just got to check your desire. The believer's life is characterized by doing what is right. Now, that doesn't mean that when you do what's right that you, but you, since you just, I have scripture reference for this. There, there's a characterization of I, I do what's right. That's my aim. I want to do, I want to be pleasing. The believer seeks to maintain a pure life. The believer seeks to sees a decreasing pattern of sin in their life, a decreasing pattern of sin in their life. So I say in that, you see what I mean? But see, but I don't use my innocence as a card to, to say my, it's so my sin's cool. I'm right back there again. Every time I receive my innocence, it pulls me to the place. I can't not do it. It pulls me into responsibility. It just does. 
And it should you if you really see the innocence and not take the innocence as some sort of a flippant gift that's been given to you, but something that has been so bestowed upon you. And in there, there's an enabling power to accomplish all that he has given you. The believer maintains a clear conscience. The believer experiences victory in his Christian walk. The number eight above says that the believer sees a decreasing pattern of sin in his life. We're going to spend a little time right there. Number eight in the list above is that the believer will evince or evidence a decreasing pattern of sin in his life. Here is what John says. No one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That to me sounds kind of a paradoxical, does it not to you? We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, Jesus, and the evil one cannot harm them. So my innocence is perpetuated. It's just perpetuated. That's a propitiation. That's what goes over and over. The water just keeps flowing over me. See, faith knows this. Faith knows this. That's how I receive this. My faith knowledge knows that I'm just innocent. It's just flowing over me all the time. Faith knows this. But then, faith also is resolved to live in that reality, identity. That's what, that's what faith knows in me. See, that's how faith connects us to it. Faith says, that innocence is what I believe, the innocence that Christ has given me. And faith comes by hearing. I hear that word and hearing by the word of God. And then faith gives me the power to reach into an unseen reality and to claim everything literally and physically and even manifest what that reality is. Yes, Think of it not as a, to, this is not a grocery list to go and pick up. This is, you're checking, you know, you got symptoms on WebMD <laughs> or whatever. I don't, I don't advise doing this. You'll come out with all kinds of stuff. <coughs> but if, <coughs> if we could type into the word of God and it's a WebMD and we want to check out the, we want to check out if we, if our salvation is sick <laughs> or healthy, Right. This is a list of healthy things that you will have or, or the contra striving, <coughs> striving, but, see, I say that, striving, I just don't want to create anywhere in there this pocket that just goes, eh, it'll be all right. You see what I mean? Like the guy who received the candlesticks and they were, and he was like, cool. See, he didn't get it. He didn't get anything. Candlesticks are going to end up in the next pawn shop. You see what I mean? There's a, there, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the receiving and the, the weight of the gift that brings the outflow. I, I just can't say it any other way. Okay, so let's just read on. Some interpret these verses to mean that Christians can attain sinless perfection. After all, John says that no one who lives in him sins. And that no one who is born of God sins. Based on these verses, they reason sin must be a thing of the past. 
if you commit a sin, that's proof that you're not saved, so to speak, because Christians are sinless. But that's not what John is teaching. That's not what John... But see here, this is some of the doctrine that I encountered when I came into full gospel circles, holiness circles. And now, I don't... I don't think that that was their intention, but it somehow it got handed down and it, it said like, well, okay, if you're saved on Sunday, but then if you sin, then you've lost your salvation. I mean, it's like this constant losing your salvation and coming back and forth. And then in order to sort of seal up the deal, they started adding things that would make outer things that would make you feel like you were good, <clears throat> but they were really worthless to actually change the heart. So they said, well, you got to wear your hair like this, or you got to wear your face like this, or you got to wear your clothes like this. And apparently only women were the one who suffered with sin. <laughs> because, because there was no imperatives put on the men. They, the men dealt with their sin by, you know, making the woman look a certain way or not. See, I don't, I, I, you know, this, no, we probably ran into these things or, we know someone who knows someone, but that's, see, we're not, this is not a crazy cycle of trying to get saved every Sunday of your life. So we know that when John writes that believers do not continue in sin, he's not referring to sinless perfection because of what he writes elsewhere in the same epistle. To believers, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we are all impacted by sin and we struggle to, with that impact. How many of you struggle with the impact of sin? Even after we're saved, this is the practical sanctification work of grace in our lives based in our positional sanctification in Christ. Working out, as Philippians 2 says, what's worked in. We will be on this trek of am saved and am being saved until we are with the Lord in glory. I must remain in him by faith. I must remain in God. I, but see, and I didn't even get to, you read on down there. There's, it comes to, though, a mindset issue. It all is about a mindset, honestly, and we're going to close with this. Paul said that he, and here's the magic scripture, if I can use magic with the word scripture. <laughs> you know what I mean. Here it is. Paul said, I reckon myself dead. It's the great reckoning. What he's saying is, I consider myself dead. Every time that sin starts making its play for me, you know what I'm saying? And there are just some practical things, guys, that you can do. If you struggle with a sin, a particular sin, there's probably some things you can turn off, turn down, or turn away from. You know, it, sure, it's all turning. That's right. <laughs> That's, there you go. You see what I mean? There are things in our life that if you're honest, that the sins that you struggle with, you are feeding them somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you're just, you know, there's a, there's a place. Is there a, pra I'm just saying, is there a practical place that you could turn that dial down? You know, if you struggle with pornography, but even more than that, <clears throat> it may mean that you need to get the internet cut out of your house. Don't carry yourself. There's things you can do. You know what I'm saying? And 
those are just practical. But the, but the real mindset is the power in the mind. So you could do all those things. You could do all those, those fiddly things, we'll call them fiddly things, and still be a sinner and still have your heart corrupt. But it's when you reckon yourself dead. When you consider that your life by faith, you consider your life is now dead and you have left the old identity in the grave and you have been raised to newness of life, then therein lies the power over all said aforementioned sin. There are people who can come to the altar and get that done in one fell swoop because of how their faith reckons. And they can get up. And they can go down. They can, they can hit their knees. A no good, pig stealing, you know, dirty, rotten scoundrel. And get up and have a degree of sanctification or separation from sin in their life that you don't even recognize. And they don't even recognize themselves. But see, and it's knowing that by faith, because when they come knocking on your door, if there is an appeal, you know what I mean? Because let's, let's face it, some things are more appealing than others. And when they come knocking on your doors to make an appeal, then you just remember the mindset, wait, I'm dead. That's not me any longer. And what you do is you stand under the canopy of what the reality is now in Christ and then also it says in Corinthians, no temptation has befallen man, woman, child, boy, or girl, such as common to man. In other words, your temptation, your temptation, we've all in the same human soup. But with the temptation, here's the promise, but with the temptation, he, I wish y'all could quote this with me, provides to them a way of escape. So don't tell me you can't stop it. You just didn't call out on your escape plan. You didn't reckon yourself dead and you didn't say, whoa, Nellie, I'm innocent, but I'm not perfect. And in this situation of my innocence, but not perfection, when I hear this temptation knocking, I say, no, sir, rebob, I reckon myself dead and I will be calling on the one who can wreck Jesus. Come, you see this temptation, remove it. You said in your word that you would provide me a way of escape. Scotty, beam me up and you will find your faith standing in that word, what I just told you, will work. If you've never tried it, don't tell me it doesn't work. Because I know, I believe the word over your facts. I just do. I have to. Facts are flimsy. The word is solid. I love you. We'll see you next week. Oh, thank you. I'll see you.